Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the CAF America Radio Network, a production of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. As the leader in global giving, CAF America offers more than 20 years of experience and expertise to corporations, foundations, and individuals who wish to give internationally and with enhanced due diligence in the United States. Through its industry-leading grant management programs and philanthropic advisory services, CAF America helps donors amplify their impact. This show is dedicated to these donors and the charities they support. CAF America is uniquely positioned to serve as the bridge between these important partners and transforms vision into meaningful action. Guests on the CAF America Radio Network are leaders in their field who share tips for success and stories that inspire. Our host is Ted Hart, the CEO of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 914-338-0855. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at CAFAmerica.org. Don't forget to dial 914-338-0855. Now, welcome the host of the CAF America Radio Network, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of the CAF America Radio Network. We are coming to you live from the Grants Managers Network Conference at National Harbor, Maryland, near Washington, D.C. I've got a couple of really great guests for you today, and I'm going to start off the show uh, with Andy Goodman. And I'm really thrilled to have Andy with us because he's here on the CAF America Radio Network before he speaks at the Grants Managers Network Conference. He is going to be the luncheon uh, plenary speaker today. He is a nationally recognized author, speaker, and consultant in the field of public interest communications. Along with storytelling as best practice, he is author to Why Bad Ads Happen to Good Causes and Why Bad Presentations Happen to Good Causes. He also publishes a monthly journal, free-range thinking to share best practices in the field. But more importantly, he's here with us today. Welcome here on the CAF America Radio Network, Andy Goodman. Thanks, Ted. Good to be here. Andy, I am absolutely intrigued by this whole notion of digital storytelling. So let's start there and tell us what is digital storytelling. Well, digital storytelling is simply taking the, the centuries-old art of storytelling and moving it to a digital platform, primarily the web. So it's just storytelling via the Internet. Well, and of course this is a mystery to a lot of people because they, the Internet, for some folks, still seems like a new platform. And for a lot of uh, charitable organizations that are engaged with trying to connect to their donors, digital storytelling is extremely important. So why are you on the cutting edge of helping people understand how they take this age-old storytelling, as you said, but bring it to the modern age? Well, I've been working on this now for about 15 years. Uh, about 15 years ago, I started to work with my clients who are almost exclusively nonprofits, foundations, government agencies, what I like to call good causes, people who are trying to make the world a better place. And about 15 years ago, what I discovered with these organizations was that when they would tell their story about who they are, what they do, why they're worthy of support, um, often they would be speaking in terms of mission statements, bullet points. Uh, acronyms, jargon, factoids. And when I would say to them, you know, just tell me a story about what you do, they did not have stories readily at their fingertips. And I often would be talking to the leadership of the organization. It might have been 
um, the executive director, it might have been someone on a board of trustees, people who were literally the ambassadors for their organizations, responsible for talking to the outside world every day about what they did, and these people did not have stories at their fingertips. So 15 years ago, I started to work with these organizations more closely, getting them to focus on what stories should we be telling and how can we tell them more effectively. And over the last 15 years, a lot of the storytelling has moved to the web because for many of these organizations, their website is their primary outward-facing means of communication with the audience they need to reach. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here on this show because I absolutely agree with you that this is the direction that charitable organizations, foundations, and others need to be going in because I think for most of those organizations, when you first start talking about this, their answer is probably, well, isn't that marketing? And right. why isn't this the same as just marketing? Because it, it, it can be marketing. But it's so much more. I mean, I believe that stories are the single most powerful tool that any of us have available to us to communicate with the audiences we need to reach. Everybody listening right now at this moment, if you're listening live or to the podcast, stories are your single most powerful tool for for human communication. It's how people think. It's how they process information. They go to stories in their head to decide what they're going to listen to and what they're going to ignore. So if you accept that, then as an organization, foundation, nonprofit, what have you, stories will be your most powerful communications tool, whether it's for raising money, whether it's for advocacy, whether it's for recruiting. Whatever you do, ultimately people want to know what's the story and where am I in the story. Right. And and when organizations think in terms of telling their story, you mentioned when you first started here, this is sort of age old. This is almost yeah. innate uh, to human beings to want to tell stories when we're together. How did that become more marketing and more bullet points and move away from the true storytelling? I think a, a couple of things happened. Uh, I know working with nonprofits over the last 10, 15 years, the message they got from the foundation, from the funding community was, if you want our support, you have to show measurable success, clear metrics of your impact, which I get. That's absolutely fine. So there was this tremendous emphasis on data, hard numbers, etc. And I think what got pushed in the background was the story, because people would say, you know, we don't just want one good story, one, you know, uh, heart-tugging, heart-string, you know, plucking story. We need the data that shows that there are thousands of stories. So I think a lot of, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the public intersector, the message was, stories are fine, it's all about the data. It's all about the data. And so, so we sort of got pushed in that direction. And I think that of late, what people are beginning to realize is that if you're truly going to connect with human beings, even if you have data, their question is, what do the numbers mean? What is the story behind the data? And so, this, so I think we're in a period right now, over the last five years, where narrative is starting to really surge. The people are starting to recognize the power of storytelling. Well, as you heard at the opening of the show, this is one of the reasons why we created the CAF America Radio Network, is to add that narrative to the grant-making process, okay. to bring those stories out, to bring experts like yourself. So what I want to do now is have you help us understand how do you develop that narrative? How do you think in terms of storytelling, in terms of, in, instead of just putting out the data? Well, the first thing you have to, have to know is uh, what, what, defines, <clears throat> what defines a good story? Um, 
there's a lot of argument about that. When I, I went to a conference where people talked about storytelling, and they would say, uh, you know, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a tweet can be a story, or a photograph can be a story, and I, I don't subscribe to that notion. Um, I believe that you know there's a very conventional definition of story, and it, a story is about a person who has a goal. Uh, pursues that goal, runs into obstacles along the way that, that makes it interesting and for, through which they make choices. And then they arrive at a new point where they have either attained the goal and we have success or they haven't and we have a lesson, but something has clearly changed in their lives as a result of that. And that, I think, has been, is, and always will be the basic the description of a story. So when nonprofits, foundations, government agencies want to tell stories about their work, the first question I ask them is, who is this story about? Where are the people in the story? Because for an audience to identify with a story, you've got to give them people. And if they say, well, the story is about our foundation, it's about uh, the, you know, the, the protagonist is uh, a program or initiative, I'd say no. So people are not going to identify with programs or initiatives. When you tell me a story, my first question in my mind, whether I'm aware of it or not, is who is this story about? And am I going to root for them or not? Right. And and what's the role of that charity in helping the 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 object of that story um, along their journey? Is part of how you can tell that story. It, it can change. I mean, it, it depends on how you want to tell a story. If you have a let's say you have an organization, for example, that provides housing for the homeless, you might tell a story from the perspective of a homeless person who is you know, living on the streets, who encounters this organization, and somebody in it particular, I met Ted, you know, a program person at the, at the and Ted, you know, I, I trusted him, and he brought me in and helped me find housing, etc. You might tell from that perspective. Or I might tell it from Ted's perspective. Ted works for the Corporation for Supportive Housing. He goes out into the streets looking for people who, who he can help. And I can see it through his eyes. So you have choices where that's concerned. Right. And for the, the organization that today you're going to help uh, train all of those here at the Grants Managers Network Conference um, to get them sensitized to the need for storytelling. Yeah. And you're going to today, I suppose, make the case for why they should care about this, this change away from sort of data-driven. Yes. But data still matters. I mean, for instance, oh, sure. with, with CAF America, we're uh, now the 278th largest charity in the entire United States. Right. Uh, we'll probably do $100 million in grant making uh, this year. Those things matter, but why does it matter more to each individual human being touched along the way that there be a story behind the data? It, it's actually, rather than story behind the data, I would say it's a story of story ahead of ahead the data. Of data. That, that people have stories in their head about the way the world works. And if I have a story in my head that the world works a certain way, let's say the story in my head is that um, the science around climate change is uncertain. We're, we're just not sure. And you come to me and say, wait a second, temperatures have gone up this much, hottest year on record, you know, uh, sea levels going up, etc. All of that data just washes over me because the story in my head is the science is uncertain. And until that story changes, your data can't get in. Yeah. So the relationship between story and data is we have to give people stories that are powerful enough that they will get inside their head and lodge there and become the software that operates their brain and says, let this data in. Is this a, a way to give people the opportunity to empathize with data? 
In other words, there's a person behind that. I, well, I, I don't when, think you ever empathize with well, doing well, data. Well, empathize you can, you can about the data. Yeah. You know, in other words, you know, for us to say, uh, you know, we made a grant of a million dollars to uh, a charity in Uganda to build a hospital right. is one way to say that story. But to tell the story of the donor who was traveling in Uganda who came back and had met a group of nuns right. and wanted to build a hospital because of they wanted to advance the cause of care right. for the people in that, that's a whole different, that's storytelling. Exactly, that's exactly. Story. You know, a million dollar grant, you know, it's, it's a number and it can sound impressive, but until I know about the hospital and the people it serves and how it's making a difference, then the million doesn't have resonance until I'm on the ground in Uganda seeing that this hospital is critical to this community and that, you know, $100 can save a life here. So imagine what a million can do. Then all of a sudden the number has resonance. So we're saying the same thing, that the story comes first to get people to to stop, look, and listen. Stop, look, and Pay attention. You know, look up from your email. Turn the iPhone away for a second. Really open up your mind and your heart and then let the data in to make the case. So, so your real message is, is helping people uh, who want to get their story out to get people to stop, look, and listen. Yes. So that's really the, the focus here. And is that because of the society that we live in yes. that there is so much data coming at you yes. from so many different uh, sectors on so many different topics that, that we almost become immune to that? Yes. And the, 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 the essence of the human uh, part of that data is far more interesting to us because we're still human, even though we live in a very digital world. I think I think you've said it beautifully. The way I, the way I would sort of sum that all up is, when it comes to information today in our lives, think about when you open up your email in the morning. Um, our default is to delete. You know, when I go through my email in the morning, it's like no, no, junk, delete, delete, delete. You know, it's just I want to get get rid of as much stuff as possible because I have so much information coming at me. The only stuff I'll open is stuff that some way I connect with emotionally. Oh, that's from Ted. He's my friend. I've got to read that. That's about this subject I care about. I want to read that. So you know, the first test of any information coming at us is, do I care? Mm-hmm. You know, there's another way of putting this, Ted, is we talk about the battle for hearts and minds. Uh, there's a reason we say hearts and minds and not minds and hearts. If it doesn't get past the heart, if it doesn't get past the test of, do I care, it doesn't get to the head for further consideration. So the reason we tell stories is we've got so much information coming at us, and our default position is to ignore or delete as much of it as possible. We have to have something that cuts through the clutter that goes, hey, it grabs us by the lapels and says, you need to pay attention. This matters. And now that I've got your attention, oh, here are some facts that show I'm not just telling you a story. So part of your challenge today, I suppose, is is to get that message across to help people understand that this is a very human pursuit yes. of the, the end product being getting the data out. Yes, we, we forget that. And sometimes we think we think that because it's a human pursuit, if we're just going to be telling stories, stories are soft. Stories are anecdotal by definition. But the fact of the matter is, it is how human beings communicate. So yes, you have to have the data, but you have to have the stories too. And in most cases, you need the stories first. Right. So we're here at the Grants Managers Network Conference. Uh, so for funders, yes. uh, you, you started off by saying that uh, charities may have gotten to this place uh, because of a maybe single-minded drive by funders to have things be measurable, and therefore charities read that as, I need more data. Right. 
um, what is the message to funders that are here at this conference as to their role in helping the story be told? Uh, that's a very good question. I'm going to be talking about that specifically this afternoon. And if I remember my notes, uh, there are four things that funders can do. Let's see if I can remember them. Uh, the first is uh, to model the behavior. If you want nonprofits, if you want your grantees to tell stories, you need to tell stories. Mm -hmm. Who you are, why you've chosen the issues you have, where you're making an impact. So you need to model it. Um, you can also require it. Uh, some of the foundations I work with have said to their grantees, when, you close, when we close out this grant, we don't just want a final report, we want a story as well that shows the, the impact of this grant. So ask your grantees or require that they do it as part of, as a part of their operations. Um, you can make it fun. Um, I know, for example, up in Canada, the uh, Community Foundations of Canada is sponsoring a storytelling competition. And I believe the Rockefeller Foundation is doing the same thing here, challenging, the, challenging their grantees to submit stories for which they will uh, award prizes. Uh, so, so they sort of gamifying it as well. And there was a fourth one, and I can now I can't. It'll come to you, but I want, as you're thinking about that, I, I want to uh, ask you the role because we start off by talking about digital storytelling. Yes. In the digital age, certainly it is said that a, a picture tells a thousand words. Yes. So, what is the role of photography and videography in this storytelling that you're now going to bring to us today? Well, when when people um, want to tell stories on the web. Um, what, I, what we know from research is that the audience is not going to go to your website and read a thousand-word story off the screen. Uh, that's just not the way people do it. So if you want to tell a story that takes two, three, four minutes to tell, um, you darn well better be doing it in video or audio, if you're, if you're really good, or maybe slides with uh, accompanying narration or a little bit of text. But you don't want to be, uh, you want to be taking what you would do in a four-color brochure and just move it to the web. It's not how people experience it. So generally what I counsel my clients is digital storytelling is best done in a video or audio format. That's where, where people will most likely uh, take it in. And doesn't that create a challenge uh, for charitable organizations who uh, may not have the skill set to be able to do that? Does that set them back, or is this actually sort of a back to basics and get to what you're really about rather than worrying about the data as much? No, I think it is a challenge. I think that they have to either develop a new skill set or bring in the people who know how to do this because, you know, telling a story on the web is not sitting your executive director down, putting a camera on them and say, talk for three minutes. Right. Uh, I mean, unless that person is, you know, Ira Glass or Garrison Keillor, you know, it ain't going to be great. Uh, and there's a lot of that on the web. In fact, a friend of mine wrote a book uh, called How to Shoot Video That Doesn't Suck uh, because there's so much bad video on the web that he, as a he's a Hollywood movie director, said there's some very simple things you can do right from the start to get better. So either develop the skill set or bring in the people who know how to do it if you're going to do video storytelling. And, and sometimes, I'm just wondering if you agree with this, I, I almost feel that sort of the grittier and grainier side of the storytelling is more interesting because when it's so polished yeah. and so perfect, it doesn't seem like a real story. So does the story have to be real or does it just have to be a good story? Uh, you know, I think, well, the real and good are both good things. I mean, yeah. uh, a, good, a, a good story will survive um, uh, bad production. I mean, the first thing you need is a good story to tell right. that has all the elements. Then the production hopefully will enhance that story, and you'll make the right choices. Um, 
you know, if the story is is a gritty story about going into the streets and working with kids, you know, uh, who are out there, you know, at-risk kids or what have you, you don't want a big, shiny, bright production. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want something that's true to it. So both form and and, uh, and um, style have to go together. So, uh, so we don't scare everybody who's listening yeah. uh, live today or uh, listening on the podcast. Um, do you have to have a Hollywood director to do this? No, you don't. Uh, there, there's plenty of good advice out there. I mean, it's sort of a parallel to what I do in my storytelling workshops. I don't believe everybody is a great storyteller, but everybody can get better. There are certain things that if you start doing certain things and stop doing certain things, your stories will improve. There's, a, there's craft here. I think the same thing goes for video. There are certain mistakes you can stop making right away. And I, you know, I don't mean to plug my friend's book, but... No, it's but, a good, good thing to plug a book but, that but, can but help his, us. His book, How to Shoot Video That Doesn't Suck by Steve Stockman, is a great primer for people who want to do video on the web, don't have big budgets, but just don't want to, want to avoid the basic mistakes. Yeah. So, uh, in, so wrapping up and bringing everything sort of full circle here, you're going to be speaking here. You're going to uh, be offering your suggestions here. Yep. Um, what do you think the biggest takeaway for all the audiences here, both on this radio show, but also here at the Grants Managers Network conference could be, having had the opportunity to spend time with you today? Um, that, as I said, the stories are your most powerful tool. It, you know, because it is ages old. Because it is ages old, because we've been doing it for thousands of years, people tend to think, you know, people tend to be attracted by the shiny new thing, and uh, they can overlook stories. But, but human beings have not changed. We are still highly attuned to stories, and when you can tell good stories about your work, you are talking to people in the language that they are most ready to listen. I, I think that's that's very important that, that you say that because um, that it is sort of getting to what's in your own heart. Yes. Why are you connected to that charity? What matters to you about that charity? And I think for, for all of us, whether you're funders or your charities, we do tend to gravitate to what's in the budget, meeting the budget, what's the data that backs up the, yeah. the budget. And I think sometimes it feels like we drift away Yes. from the stories ourselves. Yeah. So what are some of the tips that you have to get reconnected to the natural stories that might be all around us? Okay, I've got a good one for you. Um, if, I was, if I was running a foundation, um, the first thing I would do would be I'd gather the entire staff and I would ask them, tell me the story about why you work here or why you work in this field in general. What attracted you to this foundation, to philanthropy, to the issues that we deal with? In other words, tell me what uh, Marshall Gans calls, tell me your story of self. Why do you do what you do? Because people should be connected. They should know know, what drives them. Where does your personal passion intersect with our mission? You know, know the story, tell the story. And as an organization, let's all sit down together and share those stories. And I'm, I know that uh, organizations that are doing that, and it is a real culture-building experience. And that's a place to start, because yeah. you, you do have natural stories all around you. It's learning how to use Very much so. Okay. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Andy Goveman, for being here on the show. Please make sure that you tell our listeners uh, how they can reach you. Very good. Uh, my company is called the Goodman Center. And you can reach me online. My website is uh, www.thegoodmancenter.com. 
Um, I tweet under the name Goodman Center. But if you go to my website, if you go to the resources section, there are, there's lots of free stuff to download. I have a monthly newsletter. It's free. A couple of the books you mentioned are now in PDF form. They're free. And everything I do is there. So the goodmancenter.com is how to find me. Andy Goodman, thank you for being our guest here on the CAF America Radio Network. You've given us lots to think about. And now, in the nonprofit sector, we're going to be able to listen to a lot more better stories. Ted, thank you for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at CAFAmerica.org. If you're listening today, our phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 914-338-0855. Now, back to the CAF America Radio Network and our host, Ted Hart. We are back live here on the CAF America Radio Network, and we have our second guest uh, here with us live here at the Grants Managers Network Conference, uh, National Harbor, Maryland, near Washington, D.C. Jessica Bierman is uh, here with us uh, and works with foundations and other mission-based organizations focusing on organization development, facilitation, and research and development to help them become more intentional, effective and responsive to the communities that they serve. As a consultant and in her prior role as Deputy Director of the New Ventures in Philanthropy, Jessica has written and spoken widely about new and established philanthropy. Her most recent Project Streamline publication, Practices That Matters, investigates the impact of grant makers' application and reporting practices on nonprofits. More importantly, she's here live with us on the CAF America Radio Network. Welcome, Jessica. Good to be here. Jessica, it's great to have you here. This is undoubtedly one of the most important topics that uh, nonprofit and funders are looking at today, the whole area of how to be more effective, how to be more efficient, how do we organize ourselves to be the very best that we can be. So why don't we start off with you kind of laying the groundwork on what makes your work so important. Okay, I'm happy to do that. Well, you know, this, I came out of the nonprofit sector, and when I sort of hopped the fence over to philanthropy, I was really interested in that intersection between what funders do, their behavior, their practices, and what nonprofits need. And often there's a disconnect there. And so when Project Streamline came along through the Grants Managers Network, um, and I had the opportunity to kick off that project and become Dr. Streamline, uh, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to help funders be more aware of the burden of their application and reporting practices um, in relation to what it is that they're trying to achieve and help nonprofits achieve. Uh, you know, we don't want nonprofits to spend all their time, uh, you know, sort of fulfilling administrative requirements that actually don't benefit them or the funder. Um, so I think it really is finding that sweet spot between what funders need to make good decisions and what nonprofits can provide um, meaningfully, uh, you know, from their own uh, resources. Is, is sort of at the essence this a story of teaching everybody involved in the grant process to get away from sort of make work? and get to what works? Right. I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, the one way I think of it is that practices uh, for a funder, the way that you sort of show up in the world, your requirements, that's the first thing that the community sees of you. Sometimes it's the only thing that the community sees of you. And so it's really important that those practices and requirements be aligned with what you really care about as a funder. And what I find is that often funders have really great, strong values. Um, but then their practices don't reflect those values, sometimes even undermine those, their values. So a good example is, you know, a funder might really value having a close 
deep, meaningful, trusting relationship with nonprofits. Uh, but then they have quarterly reporting requirements, which you know really sort of undermines that idea that you trust nonprofits. Um, so I'm not saying that funders shouldn't ask for reports. They should, but I think they should ask themselves, why are we getting this report? What are we doing with it? Um, how often do we really need it in order to be sure that we're you know, being good stewards. Yeah, and are we actually reading the reports that, that, that come in? If we're requiring them to be submitted, should there not be a reason for that report that then flows into the management of the foundation? Right. So I remember when we first spoke about Project Streamline, it was more of sort of the theory and the glint in the eye and we were moving in that direction. You have history now. Yeah. Um, and, and you've learned a lot along, along the way. What are some of the most important messages that have come out of the actual practical use, uh, Dr. Streamline? <laughs> Where? Let me tell you. Um, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things, are the most recent piece of research, Practices That Matter, really identified the things that matter most to nonprofits. Um, and I'll talk about those in a second. But I think it's also important to note that, you know, as I've been doing this work, it's, been, it's become more obvious to me that, you know, this really matters for funders, too. Um, so it's not, just, it's not about making life easy for nonprofits. Um, we all want to do that, but that's not funders' job. Funders' job is to be good stewards of the resources and to accomplish the mission that, you know, they're, they're working to accomplish. And so um, I think it benefits funders to streamline because it helps them do more with their money. So more of that money is going toward the mission-based work and less is going toward burdensome requirements. Um, furthermore, I don't think funders really appreciate having mounds and stacks of not very useful paper on their desks either. So the five things that matter most to nonprofits, um, I think, are really just a good starting place because they tend to be things that will um, streamline within the foundation as well. You know, nonprofits really want online systems that work well. You've probably encountered online systems that um, do things like shut you out or don't let you retrieve your password or don't let you see all of the questions before you begin. Um, funders, when they choose online systems, can really have a set of requirements for what those systems should do. Project Streamline's got some resources to help with that. Um, I think it's really important to think of your, your, your nonprofit partners as your customers. And um, even though they keep coming back because what you have to offer them, they really can't turn down, you should think about what is going to make it a really good sort of customer experience for them. So online systems that work is the first. Um, another thing is that nonprofits, it's really hard on them to have to slice and dice their budget information in 50 different ways for 50 different funders. So we ask funders to think about how they can um, have budget requirements and financial requirements that really align with or allow nonprofits to use their own financial categories. So that might be a really simple template if you're a funder and really feel like you need to use a template. Uh, we really recommend that funders just accept budget information as it is. Nonprofits have ways that they keep their financials, and um, those categories work for them. If they have, um, don't have the capacity to have good financials, that's another issue. That would sort of speak to the need for some capacity support. But um, asking them to slice and dice their financials into you know, special categories just for you is really a waste of everyone's time and allows errors to really propagate, I think. Um, so that's the second thing, uh, budgets and financial categories that work. Should I go on? Yes, please, all five. All right, uh-oh, now I have to remember all five. <laughs> well, the third thing is a really sort of obvious one, but it's really hard to accomplish, and that is really strong, regular, consistent communication. 
Um, and you just had Andy Goodman on. You know, he's the master at that. I think um, funders really need to be careful that they are providing clear guidance to nonprofits about what it is they want to fund and what their funding looks like um, and what the requirements are. And I think it's, it's surprising how often it's really not clear from a website. Um, if your website's not clear about what you want to fund, you're going to get a lot of proposals that don't actually meet your, you know, don't fit well within your priorities. And that's not what funders want. You know, that's more work for everyone. So you need to be sure that you're providing good guidance um, as a funder and um, being clear about the requirements. And then on the flip side, nonprofits really want to be able to give specific, detailed feedback about, pro about the process and have that listened to. So the number of funders that actually ask for feedback about their process um, is increasing, but it's still pretty small. Um, and in our research, I think I found that more than 50% of nonprofits had never had a funder ask them for feedback about how the application and reporting practice went. You know, as a funder, if nobody ever tells you the truth about how your, proce how your processes work, you're never going to have any incentive to change them. Um, and nobody's going to volunteer that information. So uh, no, nonprofits have... Not, not yeah. when there's money on the line. No way. Yeah. No way. I mean, just what someone said, I think, in one of the surveys, they said, I would never offer feedback to my funder unless I never, ever plan to go back to them again. You know, and that's not the relationship funders want with their nonprofits, but it's the relationship they get. Um, and so for funders, the onus is on us, I think, to ask very specific questions about how, the, how it went um, and ask them in a way that's safe, where nonprofits can provide candid, anonymous feedback, um, and also to do it when funding's not in the line. So if you're going to have a conversation about how your practice goes, uh, how it went, don't ask at the end of the application. Right. Right? <laughs> people are going to be like, oh, it was awesome. It was so great. It was such a great learning experience. Uh, but that's not the kind of feedback that's going to help you. Just applying to you. you Help yeah. me learn about myself. <laughs> it was right. so meaningful. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's the third is, is um, nonprofits really want the opportunity to communicate honestly with their funders and build a relationship. They also want right-sized processes. And right-sizing is a sort of key project streamline concept. Um, it means that the requirements should be congruent with the size of the grant and the type of grant and the prior relationship with the funder. So if you're giving $2,000 grants, that probably shouldn't be a 20-page application. Um, if, if you don't have that congruence, you end up with a situation where the amount of money that the nonprofit receives might actually be less than the amount of money they spent to get it, to get the grant. Um, and so you, I think as a funder, you have to be very careful, especially when grants are small. Nonprofits told us that what matters most is having a streamlined process for small grants and for renewal grants. So if you've been funding an organization for 15 years and you intend to keep funding them for 15 more years, they probably don't actually need to submit the full 20-page application and their letter of determination and their, you know, their this and their that and their three years of audited financials with each renewal because you know them well. So there might be uh, an opportunity to have a, a shorter form at that point um, for renewals. And then the final thing that nonprofits really um, care about and that really matters to them is having a, um, a staged process. So by that I mean, and this is sort of part of right-sizing, by that I mean that um, you want the nonprofit applicants who are most likely to receive funding to be the only ones that have to do all the work. So if you have an open RFP process and you reach, you end up getting 150 applications and you're only going to fund 17 of them, that's a lot of work in the sector that you care about. 
Um, so some of the ways that you can stage the process are by doing a letter of inquiry, which allow only the best applicants to submit the full proposal. Um, some funders have invitation-only processes. Some have a conversation before they let people apply. But whatever you can do to be sure that once a nonprofit takes those many hours, you know, could be days of time, to submit the full package to you, they have a really good chance of getting funded. Right. So that, that makes it much more real, and the dialogue that you're having with them is much more authentic. I think that's right. That's, I think that's right. I mean, I, I always, I, I really feel like funders can ask themselves, what information do we really need to make decisions here at this point in the process? And uh, you might not actually need detailed financials if you're just trying to figure out does this project even fit within if our mission guidelines? Right. Then we can look at the more detail. So one of the things I took a, a, away from what you just outlined, I think, creates a bit of a paradox for most funders. Um, and what I mean by uh, a paradox is, I think I heard you say that uh, funders should be uh, build their uh, grant management. Uh, process to be very authentic to who they are. Right. So it should focus on their values and it should mm. streamline mm -hmm. to the things that they care about. At the same time, the other side of the paradox is what are best practices and what must I do mm. as a funder? In this process, do you find that there is a conflict mm. between the desire to be truly authentic and maybe unique in your right. process and what is considered best practices, and will I be judged as not following best practices? Well, there's a reason you're good at your job, Ted. That is true. Um, I, you know, I actually find that to be in conflict less often than you would think because for most funders, their primary, uh, their core value, the reason they exist is to make a positive change in their community or in their issue area that they care about. And so um, if that's really central to you, then you're going to be asking yourself, you know, how can we do the best job with that, which I think lends itself to having processes that are sensible and allow nonprofits to do their best work. So I think, I, I think those things aren't always in conflict. But sometimes you encounter, I encounter funders who, for example, it's really important to them that they be extremely diligent stewards of the money and not take undue risk. And then that would lend itself to more due diligence and more caution in selecting grantees and maybe more um, reporting requirements. And in that case, that's when that communication, um, that communication principle kicks in, I think, which is that, you know, communicating well can, uh, it can compensate for a whole host of other woes. Mm -hmm. So if you do have a particular set of requirements that um, are onerous, I think to be able to say to nonprofits, you know, here's why we need this thing from you. Here's what we're doing with it. Um, here's the benefit to us and to you and, and to the field that we all care about. Um, and just to be really open and transparent about what you're doing with the information. Um, and then I think nonprofits get it. They know that funders have their own sort of priorities and their own things that they have to worry about. And so I don't think they mind as long as they, they understand. I think what nonprofits really resent, and I know I resented when I was at a nonprofit, was sort of sending this huge volume of stuff out into the void and never knowing really what was what was becoming of it. Right. And, and how that might connect. So and, and right. constantly trying to be that good steward on the charity side, understanding that the funders want to be good stewards as well. Right. You raised an issue that I wanted to 
explore just a little bit because I think it's, uh, uh, whether it's spoken or unspoken, it sort of drives many of the decisions that are made, and that's the issue of risk management. Mm. Um, And how much risk am I willing to take and how much risk am I actually exposed to? Right. So can you speak to, for for our audience here, which are both funders and charities, Mm -hmm. um, so the reasonable person (laughs) that can guide the measurement of risk, that risk is not always in the absolute. Right. And and I think what you're saying here is you don't necessarily need the 50-page application because every single possible question that could possibly be asked will eliminate risk at the end when professionals engaged in the process can measure a reasonable amount of risk that can still be allowed in the process. How do you get there? Yeah, I think that's a really, you know, it's a personal decision or an organizational decision that in some ways has to be made foundation by foundation. Um, so, So here's the way I think of it is, you know, first, have you had an explicit conversation within the foundation or within the grant-making organization about your tolerance for risk and what underlies that? Because uh, I think sometimes foundations will say we're risk-takers, but then again, their behavior um, sort of says otherwise. And so I think to have that really explicit conversation about, you know, what does risk mean? If, if we're taking risks, what proportion of our portfolio should actually be unsuccessful each year? Um, I think and that's also, a scary concept. It is. Because I think right? for most... Right. The, uh, the answer might be zero, and is that even realistic? It's, I don't think can, it's realistic. Can, can you right. get to zero-based risk? I don't think so. I mean, and, and I also don't think that a huge amounts of due diligence will necessarily get you there. I mean, I think that an organization can check out in all sorts of important ways, you know, um, financially in terms of their board um, and et cetera, and can still not accomplish the objectives that they've laid out in a, in a grant proposal. So I think um, a, a one way to think of risk is, you know, how are we learning from grants we make that don't turn out as we expect. Um, and I think the other thing, so I guess the, so the first step is to have that conversation so you know how much risk you want to have, and then to say, well, what does that then look like in our grant making? Um, and then to realize that you can't eliminate risk altogether. Um, and then I think to get really clear on what is legally required of you as a funder and what you're choosing to do What's to mitigate choosing? risk. What is your own protocol versus legal yeah. requirements? I, 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 we, we only have about four minutes left, and, and I have so so many things I want to talk okay. to you about, um, but I, I want to explore this a, a little bit further in, in taking a look at, from the charity's perspective, I think, when they apply for funding and they get the funding, the assumption is, is that because the funder has the money, mm. they have the power, and therefore, they get what they want. Uh, yes. Look at it from Dr. Streamline's perspective. Is that necessarily the truth, and right. do you more often than not feel dissatisfaction or disappointment on the part of the funders that we are funding things that we're not quite getting where we want to be? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's true. There's a huge power imbalance often, um, and it takes a bold nonprofit to sort of say to a funder, you know, this is this is an unrealistic expectation, or I'm not going to be able to accomplish this. Here's what I'd like to do instead. Or your budget template is, you know, really onerous. Can I submit this instead? Because the fear, of course, is that they'll fund somebody else. No, they'll just say, you're too much trouble, forget it. But, you know, I'm amazed at how many funders I encounter who wish that their nonprofits would step up and tell them those things, and they say, oh, we'd be glad to, we'd be glad to modify our expectations or requirements 
but nobody ever asks us. Right. And so I still think that the nonprofits have to start that conversation. I mean, the excuse me, the funders have to open the door to that conversation. But if you're a nonprofit um, with you know with some guts, I think that most funders are very open to having that discussion with you. You, you mentioned uh, earlier that we had Andy Goodman on here, and part of what he said is that if we want to change, we have to model the change. Right. Is that your message about funders, mm-hmm. that if they want these things to happen on the part, do they need to model that themselves? They do. I mean, I think funders need to model transparency. They have to model um, uh, the sort of risk-taking behavior that they want to see from their nonprofits. They have to model good communication and good customer service, if that's what they expect of their nonprofits. Um, and nonprofits, you know, if you feel up to it, um, to model the kind of transparency and open, trusting relationship that you expect your funder to have a view, I think you should go for it. Well, Jessica, you're great at what you do, and I think GMN has been so smart to have you involved in the streamline process. But clearly, this is a dialogue that has to continue. This is this is, feels like it's just in the beginning stages. We it does feel that way. I keep expecting, you know, to say, okay, we did it, we're streamlined. But uh, I just had a roundtable on streamlining success stories, and most of the people, most of the folks who showed up uh, were actually there, hoping that they'd hear some success stories. They didn't have their own to share yet. So um, come forward with your streamlining success stories. I'd love to hear them. I think it's fair to say at the at this juncture, maybe the most important impact that you have had and Streamline has had is in getting the dive started because we haven't necessarily gotten to, to the final stage. Yeah, I think that's right. I think people are talking about streamlining. They're very aware of it now in a way they weren't. So, Jessica, we are out of time, but I want to make sure that you let our listeners know how can they reach you. Well, I um, tweet at uh, jbearwoman. And um, Jessica, BearmanConsulting.com is my website, and Project Streamline is part of the Grants Manage- uh, Managers Network uh, website. Terrific. Jessica, thank you for being our guest today on the CAF America Radio. You've been listening to the CAF America Radio Network. Tell all your friends and colleagues to check out our production schedule. Sign up for our free newsletter and download our iPad and iPod-friendly podcasts at CAFAmerica.org. Thanks for listening to the Cap America Radio Network.